thank you all for joining us. Um, it gives me a pleasure this evening to introduce Alex Fenton, who is, um, well, spent time in um, Cambridge in the land economy, six years there, and has worked at LSE up until 2013 in case he sensibly announces a social exclusion um, and, in his own words, rather, retrospectively is now um, carrying out a PhD um, at um, Leibniz University in Hanover. Um, obviously, you're saying managing very easily all of the data, collecting data sets, having done this extensively, um, both at Cambridge and at LSE. So his, his long-standing research interests include poor neighbourhoods in Britain, spatial distribution of poverty in British cities, housing planning and urban policy, deindustrialisation, unemployment, regional divergence, official public administrative statistics, and GIS and spatial analysis. His PhD work is looking um, at the comparative sociology and history of public statistics, particularly in regard to the measurement of poverty and wealth, and the statistical construction of an economic landscape in the UK and Germany. However, today he's going to talk to us about some work um, he's had previously as part of a case at Stickard, looking at uh, the spatial distribution of poverty and changes in the spatial distribution of policy across London. And just to say that Amanda Fitzgerald-Arc is, is um, here as a sort of discussion role. She's going to be um, pitching in during the discussion after the presentation. Uh, Amanda is with us here in the uh, case at LFC, so she'll be taking sort of an active part in that section of the proceedings. So more, no more ado, I'll hand over well, thanks, Alan, and uh, thank you very much for the um, invitation to come and talk to you today. Um, particularly nice to come back to this forum, because in many ways some of the ideas and initial questions came out of giving a seminar in this group about three or four years ago. Um, and then at the time I commented that I thought, you know, that over 2000, so I was pretty sure that over 2000 in London had become much less poor and out of London more so. But without really that much idea at that point, um, well, I wouldn't say it was a flippant remark, but a sort of ungrounded remark about exactly what had been going on in London, in the centre and in the suburbs um, over the 2000s. Um, before I get started, I want to say just something to the structure. I'm, this is, comes out of work over several uh, different projects over the past four or five years on housing benefit, on, uh, particularly uh, on... Um, the change in neighbourhoods and part of work that's being done at CASE uh, on a programme called the Social Policy in a Cold Climate, which is looking at a whole range of uh, social policy areas under the coalition um, government and what changes, and including with a special focus on London. Um, and I've got some really interesting work going on there, and which I am no longer um, deeply involved in, but uh, Amanda Fitzgerald is, and... Uh, She's really deep in the field, work at the moment with London councils and also with the analysis of data um, from a slightly later period than I'm going to talk about today. So since she's sort of deep in the field and, and deep in the research, she's um, decided not to present on it at this point, but rather to be here um, and discuss with you some of the more um, policy issues where she may be better placed to comment on than I can. Um, to give you a rough outline of how I want to structure the talk. I want, first of all, just to um, uh, give you the broad picture of what happened in London in the 2000s. Um, what was the change in poverty uh, you know, from a couple of different measures? 
And then I want to pick at those data a little bit and, and, and kind of ask some questions about what, what, what's going on, firstly, in terms of the difference between in-work and out-of-work poverty, uh, before and after housing cost poverty, and then changes in population and housing. Uh, and then the last main section, I want to try and link and try and make the argument that um, we want to look really quite closely at what's been happening in London's housing market and the structure of housing development. Um, in the, particularly in the poorest areas in, in, in London uh, and also in the nature of housing subsidy in London and, 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 and make, try and make the case that this, these changes in this, the structure of development and housing in London over the 2000s really strongly um, uh, lies behind what we see in the spatial distribution of poverty um, and then I've just got a few I'll really then um, welcome your questions and just have a few points for discussion perhaps at the end so um, these things I'm sure you'll all be um, uh, already well uh, schooled in, but London um, uh, falling population and uh, until <coughs> early late 1980s, early 1990s, and historically with very high um, areas of very high poverty, particularly uh, in inner London and especially and above all in inner East London, partly due to the historical structure of London's industry and partly due. Um, to where uh, large amounts of social housing was developed in the, in the post-war period. Um, so why, just a sort of preliminary subject, I mean, why might we be interested in the distribution of poverty? And it's not necessarily a problem, you know, apparent why we should care more about where poverty is than um, the extent or nature of it overall. Um, and I think different, some people might, I think there's a reason for saying we don't care or shouldn't care that much, but there are some reasons people have thought we might do, might care from a, a poverty relief perspective, how do we tackle poverty, um, is it, you know, are there ways we can target local area-based initiatives more effectively to relieve poverty, uh, or is indeed poverty is a, a sort of fixation in, that, in the 2000s, is poverty aggravated or, uh, you know, the effects of it exacerbated when it's concentrated in, in poor neighbourhoods, and therefore should we seek to deconcentrate poverty through housing interventions or uh, other such uh, policy. Another question is how well uh, are public services, particularly those that are provided by local government, adjusted to the, the prevalence of poverty? Are schools uh, appropriately funded and are programmes appropriately designed to reflect the, the prevalence of poverty? Should we? What kind of policy should be adjusted? Um, to reflect the pro uh, prevalence of poverty, how much funding adjustment is needed, and these, you know, these have kind of been running on for a long time. Certainly, you know, the, from the early 1980s onwards, there's a very explicit discussion about funding adjustments. So, so there's a discourse in, within within kind of fairly narrow policy and funding circles about concentrations of poverty, and then there are sort of slightly more, I won't say esoteric, but idealistic uh, uh, discussions about why people might be worried about the distribution of poverty. Um, one comes up repeatedly is the idea of some sort of social cohesion that it might be bad to have poverty but it's yet worse if, if rich or, or at least non-poor live somehow sundered lives from uh, one another in, in different parts of the uh, different parts of the country and in different parts of the city and another more perhaps more explicitly less sort of cohesive more explicitly uh, a kind of radical idea is the idea that there's rights to the city that somehow we should have um, you know, the benefits of dwelling in, in more attractive areas and benefiting from all the uh, things that we might like about living in London or other big cities should be uh, equally shared. 
But enough about that. I want to move on to some data um, and to some to examine the kind of the growth and then some of the more detailed uh, changes that we saw over the 2000s. Um, this is the kind of thing that, as I say, you'll probably be well conscious of. Um, this is an overall broad measure of um, money coming into to households, gross disposable household income. I've got um, top line is outer inner London, middle line is outer London, and I've pegged it to grey line bottom, the United Kingdom as a whole. And what we can see this from the um, early mid 2000s. Uh, inner London starts looking really remarkably richer. I mean, so both London, inner and outer London, both um, well off compared to the rest of the country, as we know. But at some point in the early 2000s, inner London really starts looking quite radically different, experiencing much faster income growth by this measure. The GDHI is not, however, it's a, it's a gross per head measure, and it doesn't look at the distribution of that income. Um, so it doesn't measure the same thing as poverty. It's, a, to, as I say, a sheer, slightly macro-style income measure. What we have instead here is some data from Household Survey, the Family Resources Survey, looking at poverty rates. And this is people who are below the 60% um, of national median income. The grey line at the bottom is uh, before housing costs. So we see from 2000, the dotted line there, really not very much change over the, over the 2000s. The shaded line is the um, confidence interval. Uh, and at the top, we actually see actually slight increases getting towards the end, of the, uh, the end of the decade, looking at poverty after housing costs, suggesting that uh, we, we know that um, housing costs were rising um, certainly lower than uh, the lower end of wages. Uh, I'll make a quick plug. We'll see here the, uh, uh, these lines, the confidence intervals are widening out. That's because there was a cut to the uh, Family Resources Survey sample size. And if anyone is interested in um, uh, cuts to official statistics and changes to official statistics, I'm doing a talk next week on um, Wednesday at 4.30. Um, <laughs> that was a pretty cheap uh, intro. Anyway, um, so these are London-wide measures or uh, broad area measures. And I, I would want to pick at the detail now of um, looking at smaller areas down to boroughs and neighbourhoods to see how the distribution of that poverty over the decade has changed. I'm going to use two sorts of measures, and I'm going to really work between these measures a bit to um, tease out what's been um, going on. The first measure I want to use is uh, working from uh, social security benefit uh, claims. So there's a, obviously a, a fairly strong association between uh, poverty and uh, income poverty and uh, claiming out-of-work benefits, given that, at least for working-age adults, um, having living on benefits almost by de facto guarantees that you'll be in poverty, uh, conceived in, in income distribution terms. But there are actually beyond that quite good proxies for looking at people, you know, for looking at the broader range of, of low incomes. Um, also relatively easy to work with, um, so we've created a data set called... Um, uh, UMBR, the Unadjusted Mean Setters Benefit Rate, that's the number of benefit claims divided by the number of households. Quite easy to aggregate up, can be calculated year on year, um, and so we have made the data set available on the uh, NSC website. The big problem is that now, and increasingly so, the majority of people who are in income poverty are actually in work, and we don't have a very good um, small area measure of in-work poverty. 
Um, and it's only, we, it only measures one thing, it, and it's susceptible to the changes in, in benefit rules, which, as you know, there's been uh, a lot in the last uh, few years, but also during the 2000s. So I've kind of, to set against that, I've tried to work with a, a, a sort of separate, a different approach to measuring poverty that's much more uh, closely linked to the way that we contend, you know, conventionally conceive of poverty at the national level, which is using survey data, asking people about all their sources of income, looking at their housing costs, looking at the number of people who have to be supported off that income coming into the household. Um, the problem with that, of course, is normally we don't have measures, we can't use that to measure below regional level. So what I've been trying to do is reweight this data, so using census data, tie the two together so that we can estimate um, uh, some of these you know, real income measures as opposed to just benefit proxies down to a uh, smaller area level. I won't go into great detail on that, but I'm happy to pick that up. But just to stress that the main idea of that is to look at things like components of income changes, uh, you know, the effects of changing housing costs in different areas in a way that we're really not able to do working with the benefits data. So, as I said, the broad trend in, over the 2000s was uh, poverty falling in much of inner London, uh, and markedly so in the high poverty neighbourhoods in, 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 in inner London to start with, and rather less marked uh, um, rises in poverty in outer London. So I'll give you a... I, I thought you'd probably be disappointed if I didn't give you a map or two at some stage in this talk, so uh, here's my first. Um, and this is a very, I suppose, a fairly conventional picture that you'd get if you used government data sets like the indices of multiple deprivation. Um, and this is the kind of map that people have produced from those. So the red areas are um, the poorer uh, areas in 2001, uh, down to the sort of light grey being the least deprived areas. And as I mentioned in the sort of, uh, in my um, uh, initial remarks, it's the pattern of poverty that we've um, seen in London for, you know, historically for several generations of uh, the highest poverty being uh, above all in, in inner east London, um, but also in parts of west and, and south London as well. And that's 11 years, or sort of 10 years later, oh, see if we can get the transition again. Um, and you can see that firstly in this, uh, you know, historic inner east uh, area of poverty, which is Hackney, uh, Tower Hamlets uh, in particular, also to some extent in Southwark, south of the river. Uh, quite sharp falls in poverty rates, and then quite sharp uh, rises, particularly in some of the uh, outer areas in uh, east and northeast London. Problem with this map, um, of course, is that we can't see, you know, it draws all the areas the same size by their space, we can't really see what's going on in the uh, inner areas. So this is a, a sort of a digest, um, imagining London split into roughly equal chunks, like, a, like an orange or so, and then seeing what happens um, from working from the centre out to the edge. So the grey areas, the grey sort of zones are where poverty was falling and the orange, uh, the darkest orange, where it was rising the most. So here the biggest falls were, um, as we saw on the map, but kind of pointed out a bit more clearly here, in uh, inner east London, so Hackney, uh, Tower Hamlets, the city, bits of Islington. And the biggest rises were really out on the edge, up in the you know, northern edge of London, which is like Enfield, uh, to some extent also in Brent, and to some extent also in the kind of outer edge, outer eastern edge of London. 
And what's also striking, actually, is this, this, sort of, this is the sort of wealthy uh, or more prosperous slice of southwest London through uh, Wandsworth um, down uh, to places like Wimbledon. And see very and Putney and so on, very little change, very little going on there. There are areas that weren't poor and remained non-poor in the 2000s. So it's not that all areas of the suburbs became poorer. It's, it's quite pronounced in certain uh, chunks of outer London. And this is just to say, well, let's tally up against uh, what was going on with employment <coughs> rates um, and picking out those areas that we saw changing in the my, uh, hexagon map. Uh, the grey line is the overall employment rate, the bottom line is the female employment rate. So in inner London, steadily rising um, employment rates from about 65 up to about 68. Uh, more strikingly so for, uh, for women, uh, from about 55 up to about 60 just before the, uh, in 2010. And these patterns are even more striking when we look only at inner East London, you know, picking out that small area which is like Tower Hamlets, Newham and uh, Hackney. That really quite marked rises in uh, employment rates for adults and, and especially for uh, for women, and then corresponding uh, or counterbalancing that falls in outer uh, falls in employment rates in outer East London. What's very hard for us to know, of course, is whether this is the changing circumstances of the people there, or whether that um, you know, there's less employment overall in outer East London, so the people there no longer had jobs. Or to what extent it changes in population? And that's not a question I can um, decisively answer, but I'm going to try and, uh, I'm not going to give you a, a, a convincing solution to that, but I'm going to try and show some why some of these population patterns have been, might have been changing. So as I said, the first step after the, that sort of broad picture I wanted to do was to kind of pick at this in a couple of ways. Um, I've just presented broad poverty rates without really thinking much what's going on behind those changes in poverty rates. So there's three, uh, three ways um, I want to, to pick at that a bit. And the first and, and, and perhaps most important of that is to question what, you know, what are the changes in poverty rates down to simply... So a poverty rate is number of people in poverty divided by the number of all people or all households in an area. So, you know, the most, I suppose the most obvious way of thinking of a poverty rate falling is the number of um, people in poverty falling. But actually, I want to suggest that what's going on in much of Inner East London or in Inner London as a whole is actually more people, more households altogether. Um, and that is, is um, uh, driving the change in poverty rates a lot more. And then I want to also then pick a little bit and look at the question of what, what is the structure of poverty? Is it out-of-work poverty? Is it poverty before or out, after housing costs? Um, so first to population and uh, poverty count. So I've um, here stacked up uh, by... No, these are all the neighbourhoods with the poorest neighbourhoods at the top and then the least poor neighbourhoods in 2001 at the bottom and broken them up into ten even groups. We've got Inner London on uh, the my left, that's not very good, left, uh, and Outer London on the right. So in each of these uh, uh, groups of, you know, from, uh, divided by how poor they were at the beginning, shown in grey the change in the number of households, so more being bigger net increase in households, and a little red line being the number of um, poor households. 
So everywhere is growing, since London um, overall was growing. But we can see that household growth, I mean, if these were in each, in each of our inner and outer London, we would expect, if there was no relationship between growth and uh, poverty, we'd expect the bars to be the same size in, in a group. But what we can see is that in inner London, um, lots and lots more households, very fast growth, and particularly uh, you know, that growth being concentrated in the uh, neighbourhoods which at the start of the, the decade were the poorest. And that, with only very marginal growth, the red bars on the left, in the number of, uh, of households who were poor. And then almost the opposite picture in um, outer London, so that we see quite large increases in poor households, um, these red bars, particularly in the somewhat less prosperous parts of outer London, at the, start of the at the start of the century, and then um, really quite small uh, uh, or uh, growth in, in household population in the uh, poorest areas. And actually, we would expect, given that inner London is slightly smaller, it includes less uh, less population than outer. We'd expect inner London bars to be somewhat uh, have less household growth if household growth was distributed evenly across the city. And that's really not the case. So that we see, you know. The, fastest growing areas were both, you know, were really the um, least and most prosperous bits of the inner city. So the second way I wanted to pick at it was to say, well, it was the question a bit exactly what's going on behind this. So at the moment I've mainly worked with this, um, you know, poverty proxy measure. And some of these, uh, this is the poverty rate in 2001 and the poverty rate in 2011. So if they're below the dotted line, these are the boroughs that were, uh, had falling poverty rates. Um, and what I expect, we find uh, Hackney and Islington uh, here under the line. Those were the ones that had some of the most red areas, the highest poverty areas in 2001. And we see some of the boroughs that were up in uh, north and outer London, like Enfield, uh, Brent, uh, Barnet, and so on above the line with the largest increases in poverty. But there's some puzzles in here. Um, so Bexley, Havering, Barking and Dagenham are all below the line. I think that's one, you know, shows one problem with these, uh, one problem with these poverty measures that are only based on benefits. These are areas with relatively high proportions of old people. And these are, pe and uh, pensioners, or particularly poor pensioners, were amongst the greatest beneficiaries of uh, Labour's changes to Benefits, so that these purely benefit measures don't pick up some of these um, uh, changes in benefit policy, benefits for, in this case, benefits of pensions becoming more generous. So that there's often a bit of a discrepancy, especially for some of these areas, between a purely benefits rate and a, a poverty rate as it's more conventionally conceived. This, I think, is a, a more uh, telling or a more important. Um, question for us and that, that informs what, what was going on in inner London over the 2000s. Um, what I'd like to do is show the additional amount of poverty, uh, additional poverty rate in each area that's due to um, people's housing costs. Um, people, the, the, the principle in, in poverty measurement would be that you can't escape paying housing costs, uh, so your, uh, you know, your income should be normally considered uh, whether it's able to meet the needs of your household after your rent or mortgage has been paid. Uh, in London being more expensive, we see that right even at the beginning of the decade, places like Tower Hamlets, uh, Lambeth, uh, 
Hackney all had uh, after housing cost poverty rates about 10% or so higher um, than um, than before housing costs. So you know, the number that's an additional percentage, you know, additional proportion of households being pulled into poverty by the expense of their rent, uh, and often in Hackney and Islington, um, and much lower rates in you know outer London boroughs like well, Havering, uh, Bexley, and so on. But what was very striking is looking at well Tower Hamlets, but also Westminster, um, Hackney, uh, really jump out as this uh, additional. Poverty as a result of housing costs um, rising very sharply during the 2000s. So what I'm suggesting was going on here was that there's, you know, it is indeed a, a fall in the number of people claiming housing, uh, sorry, claiming means-tested benefits on out-of-work benefits. But these reductions in poverty during, due to that are really being offset by, or to, to quite a large extent, by additional people um, struggling with uh, housing costs and finding their housing costs relative to their wages or uh, benefit income too much to, to manage, so that we've got a change in the, in the nature of poverty going on in London, rather than just a simple, uh, a simple decrease. So in the last section, I want to touch a bit now on the, um, the kind of patterns of housing development and, uh, that might lie behind some of this. Um, not so much uh, housing costs, which I've just touched on, but on the you know, development of, of new housing, um, of which there was uh, a lot, arguably not enough, but uh, certainly a lot in London in the 2000s. The most striking thing, look at this data, which I'll show in a second, is how much the development of new housing was concentrated in inner London, not outer London, and how much within inner London that was uh, concentrated in the neighbourhoods which right at the beginning of the uh, decade with the poorest neighbourhoods. So neighbourhoods that were already densely built up, that had high populations and relatively poor populations, were the ones where the largest amount of um, additional housing was developed in London in the last decade. And this was not merely additional housing, but it was generally in the city centre housing of a, of a higher value than was there up until that point. Um, so that it was I put gentrification in quotes, but there's not, we don't really have a, net, a, a, a better word for it. But there was a, a, a form of kind of capital intensive and a type of gentrification of upgrading of the housing stock that's going on. And then also, this is not a matter of simple capital movements, but this is a matter of state policy, both to encourage development in, uh, that encourage development in, in poor areas, and particularly in social housing estates, but also that uh, changed the nature of uh, the way low-income households were subsidised to meet their housing costs in the 2000s. A few more maps. So this is uh, uh, breaking London up into um, uh, one kilometre squares and then saying how much new housing was built in each of those, uh, or what net new housing uh, was there in the... Uh, over the 2000s. So much of this is new building, some of it can also be um, uh, changes of use, people splitting houses into flats, but the, the really big changes come up where um, you know, large new developments are taking place either on uh, existing housing sites or sometimes on uh, you know, previously derelict or industrial sites. And the 
striking pattern the you know these darkest areas where well in some cases up to 5,000 uh, new dwellings um, I've captured 2,000 to show the pattern a bit more clearly but there's a very dense pattern of development large amounts of new housing being built where already housing was relatively dense in the center particularly around the east and the um, uh, north of the center and then to some extent also along the river so this is this here roughly is the kind of Canary Wharf uh, area there, which some of you know. Um, as the uh, business side of it is developed, so is the housing side. And as I mentioned just now, this was not simply a matter of uh, building the same thing as was already there. Um, or in many cases, it wasn't. It wasn't just uh, adding on like for like. <coughs> It was actually a, you know, a shifting up in the value of uh, housing relative to what was there. Um, I won't go into great detail about the, the measure here, but um, this is using council tax uh, um, records, which have uh, a number of dwellings by council tax banded. The great advantage, or it's not very useful for many purposes, but one advantage is that new dwellings are priced uh, relative notion to their notional value in 1993 or 4. So that it should be, uh, in, in principle, a like-for-like -like valuation of what the new value, what the new dwellings are like um, relative to the old uh, dwellings, in a way that market prices are much harder to, to get to that on. And again, the red areas are where there's uh, upgrading, so where what was being built over the 2000s um, was more valuable than, or you know, higher value dwellings than what was there in the uh, at the start of this, uh, the start of the decade. And again, the pattern is, is, is similar. What comes out most strikingly, I think, from this is the concentration and the kind of upgrading of uh, uh, dwelling value that took place along the river. So that's not just you know in the kind of east reaches of the, the Thames. Um, along bits of the Lee Valley, uh, but also in the, the western reaches, so the big developments, as uh, some of you know, in bits of Wandsworth, Lambeth, um, and then into the, you know, into the, further into the western boroughs. And very little of that, this kind of upgrading pattern taking, taking place outside of the uh, inner boroughs, some odd spots um, up in the northwest and the southwest. But really this kind of upgrading process very distinctly taking place along um, the river and to a certain extent and less markedly in the inner east boroughs whereas we've already seen uh, poverty rates were, were falling most swiftly as you'd expect perhaps the poorest areas are typically those that are built up most densely so the pattern of poverty in London has often been that um, you know, the most deprived areas were relatively dense or uh, high rise or mid rise uh, often social housing estates. Um, so I showed you the pattern merely by geography. This is to said to look again, how does uh, the pattern of development match up with the uh, start, you know, deprivation levels at the start of the decade? And as uh, I did in the earlier slide, we've got the most uh, poor at the beginning of the century areas at the top, down to the uh, uh, least poor at the bottom split into, uh, again, 10 uh, decile groups. And the line shows you at the left end um, where the density at the start of the decade. So you might know, expect, uh, no, this was around 40 to 50 
um, uh, dwellings per hectare in the um, most uh, in the poorer parts of inner London, down to some somewhat below 40 dwellings per hectare in the uh, less poor, and then in outer London between 10 and around 20 dwellings per hectare. That perhaps is not very surprising, but uh, you know, poor areas are relatively denser. What's more surprising uh, is how much the line measures how much denser each area got, and you can see that that pretty much straight follows a pattern of, um, of deprivation. So the areas that were already dense were the ones that got, uh, had the most new dwellings in them and got denser faster. So the biggest line being that of the poorest 10% um, uh, uh, neighbourhoods in inner London, um, where the, which received the largest number of new uh, buildings. Oh. Stick with that for a second. Um, I mean, just to point out that, that I mean, we also then I, I haven't uh, got a slide on this, but that there's also a correlation between the um, amount of new housing. If you look at those poor neighbours, between the amount of new housing and the fall in poverty. So there are a lot of what's going on there. I think is that um, people are building new dwellings, uh, new dwelling people either by developers, by RSLs, uh, particularly on social housing estates. Um, which was enabled partly as a matter of policy, partly as a matter of um, financial expediency. And the majority of the new populations, explaining why we can use much bigger populations in those areas, are, at least by benefit measures, non-poor, but, as I earlier, possibly in preca rather precarious uh, circumstances. And so it was not just a matter of government policy to... or or at least a side effect of government policy to encourage development of new housing on uh, these areas, in the poorest areas, and explains perhaps what's happening relatively in inner and outer London, but also the way in which poor households were being subsidised and given help when their housing uh, costs were unaffordable. <coughs> but the two main uh, planks of government policy for a long time, not, not merely in the 2000s, to do this um, you know, that were purely, sorry, purely housing measures apart from other general poverty measures. Rather, give people a house on a low rent, uh, either a council house or uh, a house with a, a housing association or a social landlord, or um, increasingly to um, pay people, give people either landlords or direct to tenants to help them with their rent in the private sector. And of course, these things, all sorts of changes going on behind, with these over the 2000s, housing being sold off, demolished uh, in the social sector, uh, and more people receiving housing benefit. But these things were going on slightly differently in inner and outer London. So the um, solid lines at the top are the total number of, best guess at the number of households in subsidy. So that's either getting a, a social rented house, or... Um, receiving housing benefit to help pay their private rent. And then the grey line, so the colours all come out brilliantly, but the grey line is at the very top is inner London, uh, and then the red line, solid line beneath it is outer London. Uh, and of course the, this means that the percentage of people, outer London be bit, having more people in it altogether, more households in it altogether, that outer London has historically had far fewer um, subsidised households uh, and inner London, far, far greater proportion of households either getting housing benefit or living in social housing. Uh, I've got the figure somewhere in the presentation, but at the start of the decade, it was about 20, 22 percent 
of households in outer London were subsidised, and in inner London, something like 40, 42% um, in subsidised <coughs> And one of the things, and this notable thing that happened, is that outer London uh, has a lot more households, about 100,000 more households who are uh, at least in housing need and uh, receiving subsidy to get in their housing. But that growth came up almost entirely uh, through this dotted line here at the bottom which is the number of people um, receiving uh, private uh, help with their private rent. And this is, a, I think, an important, um, you know, not, it's important not to sort of see this either, you know, in a, in a sort of stark black or white uh, effect. I mean, this, in many ways, gave people the opportunity to live where they would not perhaps have otherwise been able to live. Uh, house, you know, low-income, or often working households, were then able to live in uh, through the you know through the extent, extended use of private sector housing benefit to live in um, uh, a broader range of areas and in out of London. Of course, that's what households um, uh, throughout London's history have done: tend to move out and, and um, move on as they've gone with families. So that it's perhaps not unreasonable that uh, the benefit or subsidy system enabled uh, low-income households to do the same um, over the life course. On the other hand, it was an extremely um, high cost. It's extremely expensive, as you can imagine, uh, paying people's rents in London. Um, so whilst, and, and the same was happening in, uh, in London to a certainly lesser extent. So whilst the number of total amount of social dwellings was declining slowly but steadily by about 25,000, 30,000, you have a large increase in um, the amount of people claiming housing benefit. So I... I want to really just to wrap it up at that point and um, just to summarise what I've suggested is going on firstly in outer London, rising poverty, although not uh, as, um, uh, not, 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 not incredibly quickly as the falls in inner London. Um, and these falls are mainly being in out of work poverty or uh, a large amount of it being picked up by people who are uh, claiming out of work benefits. And some of this is offset by changes to the benefit system so that um, out of London, by the nature of its population composition, uh, benefited rather more from the targeting of social security uh, increases at, at pensioners. And a relatively modest amount of housing development going on in out of London compared to, certainly relative to the starting population. And a correspondingly slower increases in, in population and households than um, some of the very fast things that were going on in inner London. And amongst all the households in outer London, was, as I suggested, a rising proportion of those are people um, receiving in one way or another some kind of subsidy because they can't afford their, uh, their housing. And most of that coming through more expenditure and more claimants of uh, housing benefit or local housing allowance. And then inner London, um, as well clear from the maps at the beginning, as I said in the introduction, and as I hope I've convinced you, very striking uh, marked falls, especially in the poorest neighbourhoods in, um, uh, in, in poverty rates, as we can best estimate them by, um, uh, by the kind of measure that we've used for a neighbourhood level. And this is somewhat confirmed by rising employment <coughs> rates in uh, inner London, and especially in the kind of traditionally historically poor boroughs like uh, Hackney and Islington. But there's this, this sort of picture of uh, uh, at least falling poverty is somewhat offset by perhaps what, what might 
Dare to Drive is a, a precariat of this is more working age households, more households in work, but an increasing proportion of those uh, finding their housing costs putting them into poverty. So that when we look at, you know, when we use a, a kind of true poverty measure or a, a, you know, a full income measure, we see that sort of the, what the, the kind of uh, crude picture somewhat tempered. Also, that this was not reductions in the uh, number of poor households, but that the changes in poverty rates are much more uh, to be attributed to very fast increases in population, reflecting very fast, uh, rapid development, especially in the poorest areas, and especially in inner East London, of um, new housing. So just a few words on uh, you know, what might be the prospects and what, uh, um, and then a, a couple of points for discussion, which, which, kind of, which strike me. But I mean, but the first thing to uh, observe is that although there is this change going on in the 2000s, that by no means that there's been that London has in 10 years flipped inside out in, in its uh, in the spatial distribution of poverty. That inner London and particularly boroughs like uh, Tower Hamlets. Uh, Newham, Hackney are still, uh, whatever measure we might use um, of employment, of uh, benefit claims, or of, uh, of income measures, of wages, uh, much some of the uh, much the poorest parts of London, and still, uh, you know, amongst the poorest parts of the country. Although they have tended to improve their position somewhat relative to the big northern cities. So, I mean, one, one question is whether that change will continue or accelerate. We, you know, is this the sort of, are we just seeing the start or the beginning period of a long process of, of a sort of restructuring of London, <coughs> reshaping of London, so that it might look more like, you know, will London in 10 or 5 or 30 years look more like uh, Paris, for example, which is the, the one that people always quote, where with a relatively prosperous and well-to-do uh, core and... Uh, Poor, deprived uh, suburbs or exurbs. A couple of things that might be going. I mean, one of course is changes in housing benefit, um, which I've, which I've spoken about here before. I won't talk in uh, great detail about, but just to mention that I mean, there's clearly that the structure of uh, uh, subsidies for um, private sector tenants is in the strongest sense to move out of inner London, um, and that's already being picked up in the. Uh, Payment figures. Also, questions about you know the contribution of rent. So, one of the claims made for changes to housing benefits that would help bring down private rents. No sign of that happening as yet, as probably some of you experience yourselves. Um, so, that kind of component of poverty, which is coming from households struggling to pay their housing costs, uh, shows at the moment no signs of abating and likely increasing. And then there are also questions that, you know, more uh, in, the native, in the realm of housing and planning about what kind of housing is going to be delivered under, um, you know, under the mayor's framework and so on. Is it going to be affordable housing? Uh, is it really going to be housing that's targeted at the uh, income poor? And that, that's, you know, that, that those are really open questions that will affect how this uh, uh, evolves further. I mean, and some sort of follow-on uh, policy questions, and I think, you know, Amanda a better place to pick up on this than I am. Uh, you know, what, what do these changes mean for uh, the provision of services, particularly for local authorities who are concerned to provide, for example, social care, um, education, and so on? 
one of the notable uh, features of the changes to local government, um, local government's been uh, amongst the most uh, hard done by and the most hard hit by the uh, reductions in expenditure since 2010. And that was a very uh, a regressive change, um, partly undoing what was uh, sort of progressive in the uh, technical sense rather than in any political sense in the you know, that uh, changes under new labor which tended to dish more money out to poorer neighborhoods sorry to poorer authorities that the changes in local government funding were both deep and tended to affect poorest boroughs both in london and out of london and those so there's questions really about what you know how uh, what are what are the challenges for local authority services provision with reduced funding and this this regressive change and the changes in um, uh, the structure of poverty in London. And I suppose aside from those, just some last thoughts, um, aside from those kind of fairly uh, narrow or more pragmatic questions, are really what, uh, I suppose, firstly just to underline what I would like to do or what I've hoped, tried to do is really to try and, you know, connect uh, the traditional classic poverty studies to the housing policy and, and, and analysis of both the market and the degree of marketisation because I think what characterises what we saw certainly in the housing development in the, in the third section is that not only these are these are decided changes, these were government policy, and they were, you know, the increased use of market mechanisms in the provision of uh, housing, both the use of subsidising private sector, you know, um, consumption side uh, subsidy rather than supply side subsidy in social housing, um, and the opening up of land and the uh, within government. Well, uh, publicly owned land uh, and social housing estates to uh, capital investment producing this pattern of densification and rapid housing development in the poorest neighbourhoods. Um, and uh, and there's sort of, uh, a question that, you know, about which way around do we want to look at that. So the, you know, a lot of the stress within discussion about the, the housing crisis, which of course is rarely uh, out of the news, is a question of, of housing supply. And I think there's a question here about what, you know, also what are the, um, London's problem, of course, or insofar as it might be a problem, is very high income inequality. You know, to what extent do we understand the kind of differential consumption um, and inequality in housing consumption as a contributor or as a possible solution to um, housing, uh, to the housing problem uh, of overcrowding? So, um, Becky Tunstall at York is showing quite nicely uh, how the changes in income inequality um, kind of show up in changes in inequality in housing consumption. So over um, the last 30 years, tended to get uh, in greater income inequality, and that shows up as uh, the most prosperous households uh, or the best off households consuming uh, correspondingly unequal amounts of, of housing. So it's kind of the, do we need a bedroom tax for the, 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 the wealthy? Um, and I think and I'm interested in that because I think you know I don't think it's not because I wanted necessarily to replace uh, employment policy or uh, as a replacement for employment policy or traditional welfare transfer policy as a replacement for poverty policy or necessarily to replace a kind of housing inequality as a replacement for housing supply just that these you know the kind of employment uh, increase in housing supply are Overemphasized or almost exclusively emphasized as a solution to this recurring problem, you know, recurring policy domains of, of poverty and uh, inadequate housing. 
And I think there's a, a second question which we really form in, which is a more of a, a methodological question, is about what are the, what's the comparative approach here? What should we be looking at London against? Um, I mean, one is to think about London in its, uh, as a global city and in relation uh, and its global relations. And uh, people in this room have done very interesting work, for example, on international migration and what, how that's changing labour market structure, but also on, on capital flows. Where is this money coming from that's building the housing? Why are rents rising? And um, you know, what's the, you know, how much is London's employment and growth structure? A consequence of its position in relation to other world cities is the term is used. And then another question is, you know, what do we should be comparing it to just other cities in general? Are these questions are there generic answers or to some of the housing and planning problems that we can draw from this? Or London is London in so way so special or odd or um, idiosyncratic that what we see in London doesn't hold? And then there's questions, you know, should we be comparing London to other British cities? And I mean, I think this is perhaps, you know, there's a, I would say that London's perhaps overstated how special London really is and how special some of these features really are. I mean, Amanda, again, has been doing some interesting work on comparing these sort of poverty, decentralisation of poverty in London to looking at other cities. And we see something similar going on, although less markedly and less swift, in, in other large uh, British cities. You know, and is this kind of high poverty rate something that's distinctly London, or is it, um, you know, an urban feature which is, you know, which is because we analyse urban poverty is a topic as old as um, sociology. And suppose the last question, which I, you know, I'm, I, I would be interested to have your thoughts on, and it strikes me, um, you know, living in, in Berlin now. I mean, some of the Berlin is a very different city in, in many ways, different housing structure, different, not a rich city by uh, any, you know, by any uh, comparison to London. But with this question of rising rents, the decentralisation of poverty, the questions about uh, the uh, generosity of welfare benefits, does it enable low-income households to live in the centre? And these questions are constantly thematised in the local press. People talk about them. Um, there are action groups, you see graffiti everywhere about it. And I'm curious in a way, you know, is, uh, is this, am I missing something in London? Is this thematised? What, what is the, you know, is, is this um, imperceptible? And why, you know, are, are these political questions and are these in the big sense um, as well as just some maps? Anyway, I'll leave it there and thank you uh, very much. So there's some, so there is really some deconstruction. There is something going on there. And I think, 
I would also name it that in the sense that there's something, you know, there's some policy decision which has these effects. This is not just a, a sort of trying to argue with it, is that um, uh, that it's not merely kind of aleatory that this pattern has emerged, that there's some real things going behind there that pick that. Um, but I think you know you're quite right to call it deconcentration. You know, if you look at segregation measures, those are falling both for rich and for poor, which is really interesting. So that both poor households and the richest, 20% and 10%, are less segregated in, in the 2011 than they were in 2001. So some of it is really dilution, and, and again, I think that you know it can be attributed to some of the housing values that I've spoken about. Okay, I'll open it up to the floor and. Following our tradition this time round, we'll go for uh, one of our rough students first. Thank you. Yeah, um, I would like to know whether you think that the mixed communities agenda is uh, rather making it more difficult for local authorities to tackle poverty with uh, area-based policies, or on the contrary, it makes it easier because, it, uh, as you said, we need the, the concentrate uh, or I mean, I suppose it depends a bit what you think area-based policies are really for. Um, you know, are they? So, I mean, coming back to the first slide, I, I sort of made a distinction between thinking about spatial justice and um, and poverty relief. So, one view might be, you know, you're, we've or have in the past, I and mean, there isn't really a neighbourhood policy anymore, but in the 2000s, spent money to uh, target a particular very poor neighbourhoods. So was that in order, I mean, proportionally it was in order to reduce poverty in those neighbourhoods, or is, that, you know, is it really more important that people who live in poor neighbourhoods don't um, unduly or excessively more exposed to uh, worse features such as crime or poor local facilities, poor schools and so on. So is that a kind of compensatory funding that, and so, I mean, or is it, you know, and where uh, with the main kind of thrust of poverty relief being through employment and transfers. And so I think the question about whether um, um, mixed communities, insofar as it was a policy or as a result, it's important. It depends a bit on whether what you're trying to do. So it would be a problem if you thought that was your main way you're going to relieve poverty was by implementing neighbourhood programmes. But really the amount that was spent on neighbourhood programmes is pretty small compared to both what local authorities spend overall and to what's spent on you know, conventional uh, tax transfers, um, welfare type of policies. So I think the answer is probably not, I think, because I think you would think about area-based policies and targeted policies really as being more important for addressing difficult conditions and the un uneven experience of difficult uh, conditions and poor services than it really is about hoping that it will be the major plank of a poverty reduction strategy. Um, Could you explain what spatial justice is? Because <laughs> um, it seems to me that's, that's the confused concept which runs through this whole policy formation. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a proponent of it particularly, but I suppose it's what I've just touched on there, that, um, that certain goods and uh, like policy, you know, things that are publicly provided, natural goods are uh, spatially distributed. 
and that you know, access to them and enjoyment of them is spatially conditioned. And that in some measure or another, um, we would want the access to those spatially located goods um, not to be equaler or equaler than it is, or not unduly equal. And it's the same, it has the same confused concept in that, well, how much inequality is tolerable? Um, but that, that's roughly what I take spatial justice to have uh, to mean. There's a, a sort of equalization of access to goods that are located somewhere. But is, is, it, is the problem not that it ties it to areas rather than tying it to people? So you might think that the principles of quasi-spatial justice would be that your welfare should not be affected by where you came from, um, rather than where you happen to be living at a point in time. Because a lot of what you're showing hmm. there seems to be people moving around the map rather than things that are happening to individuals. Yeah, I mean, Casey said that you'd be interested in individual outcomes, if that's what you um, mean. Um, I mean, the experience of poor public services that are important to people outcomes are, are quite strongly located. I mean, put, um, schools were being the, um, you know, the most striking example that you know, you'd like to, have to be in a bad school um, because you're in a poor area. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should not have poor areas. I, and my, but my broad view would be that don't be surprised you have an uneven distribution if you have an uneven, an uneven spatial distribution if you have an uneven distribution full stop. I think that's, a, you know, that wouldn't necessarily, so either you make schools in poor areas better or you, um, you know, or you have a just and kind of, and that seems to be the most sensible line to be thinking along rather than you know, seeking a redistribution of people as an end in, its, in itself. Um, I mean, you suggested that um, parts of the, a lot of the results you see here are to do with the, uh, uh, I guess, the kind of re uh, de demolition, rebuilding, consolidation paradigm of, of kind of ailing 19 or post-war mid-war housing stock. And I was just wondering to what extent you think your findings are related to, you know, just kind of coming to the period where that housing stock is kind of falling apart and needs and needs regenerating, whereas in maybe like 10 years' time. Or perhaps even now, there's hardly any of that housing, particular housing stock that was shoddy put together and kind of falling apart right now, uh, will be left. So, to what extent do you think your findings are yeah, related to the crumbling of the public housing building program? I mean, yeah, you're right, that was certainly at least a, a very strong, you know, we looked at what local authorities were doing and why they were doing this demolition and rebuilding and densification of uh, very poor neighbourhoods. Um, it was often not, you know, because they were pursuing a mixed communities policy because they said we want a mixed community here. It's because they said, well, we can't, this, we have this affordable homes target, we need to get to that point, we need to have so much of decent, of a decent standard. And we can't do it with this. This is too difficult. This stuff is too decayed. That was, I mean, well, you know, people had different views about whether, where, and when that was true. But that was certainly the rationale for it. Was was not to do with it. Um, so I mean, there isn't. I don't know. Whether, I mean, because there being so practically no social housing or very little social housing, or certainly no, virtually no council housing. About whether that's true, whether that is a cycle now. But I think some of the broader pressures will continue to bear. So. I don't think it is just a kind of effect of housing generations. Um, and also, when I was, when that change wouldn't have happened, perhaps, you know, to the extent and speed which it did, 
without things like the affordable, uh, decent homes standard. And that, that was a strong policy push to get that um, done. And so it wasn't just a sort of a natural aging cycle of those houses. Because I mean, many of them were already in a pretty decayed state, uh, you know, and nothing had been done about them at the, uh, in the late 1990s. Another question at the back, and then maybe two at the back, and then maybe bring Amanda in. Two striking things that are, or two important things that are going on. Firstly, you know, both the um, crisis in 2007 and then you know, the rises in unemployment after that falls, but actually falling in inequality because um, lower, top, the top end of the bottom end of income is being somewhat protected by um, by benefit system and benefit rules, whilst higher incomes falling swift more swiftly. Um, so the benefit stuff is quite nice because it allows us to look year on year and you can see a very sharp, you can see whether that is a, a longer term trend and what it picks up this very sharp rise in unemployment and that sharp rise in unemployment affecting poorer neighbourhoods um, uh, more severely so that more people in vulnerable employment are being uh, affected by that. What I think is, it, it doesn't quite, uh, I think it gave me enough confidence to feel that that snapshot is not totally misleading that we have there, that some of these things are going on, I mean, I certainly, you know, going back to, um, here, for example, you know, I think there's something, there's, there's already some, some sense that something might be, you know, of what's going on over 2000 as a whole. Um, that, I mean, that's obviously not spatial, highly spatially detailed data, but it, it's some sense that we can, you know, whether there's, you know, a very uh, 
um, a big jump. But of course, you can see some of the effects, you know, whether that's an effect or whether that's an outlying point in 2008. But it, and then on men and women, yeah, I mean, the, that's one of the reasons I wanted to start working with some of the survey data and trying to bring together survey and census data because the benefits data tends to be analysed in a very household insensitive, um, uh, insensitive way. It's just, it's just a sort of raw number and gives a very little sense of how, either how the incomes of households are changed by what components, whether by low pay or now increasingly by benefits changes. But I, I have to admit I haven't gone a long way in teasing that out by, um, you know, by gender myself. But I think that's one of the reasons what I wanted to push is a little bit beyond simply using benefits IMD type data because it begins to look at some of the you know, questions about who, the more precise nature of who and how it was affected. Um, given that um, your research shows very clearly that uh, the big concentration of new housing in places where poorest Londoners lived hitherto, and given we also know that a lot of that housing will have been owner-occupied or it's certainly not been uh, social housing. Presumably, going back to the spatial justice concept or whatever, this is going to produce heroic mixing of communities. And it is sort of the one thing that politicians have desired to do for decades, which is to get large numbers of better off people living in poor neighbourhoods, is mm. being achieved at scale mm. in inner London. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Whether that's a, you know, whether that, you know, what, whether it achieved what uh, politicians want to achieve, I don't know. But. No, no, but it's just interesting to observe that how there are all sorts of in between. That is, the rich people oppose housing more than poor people, mm. and the boroughs concerned, Labour boroughs are more in favour of development than conservative ones, and often. Mm. So there's lots of intermediate variables, but it's interesting. It must have had that effect to some degree in mixing mm. communities, however, accidentally. Yeah, and like I was pointing out, that's what it's not that, it, that this was happening, like you say, really on a large and you know large and very widespread scale. That it wasn't something merely that took place in a few regeneration projects, but was really you know a, a widespread effect. But and also, as I said, that the rich became less segregated, which was a, which is a slight reversal of what other people have suggested was happening UK wide, um, you know, in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Two very quick comments. I mean, that was very interesting, but in a way, what's particularly intriguing is to see how much the outer boroughs, which have dug in their heels so effectively for years to stop them getting in this awful working class people exhausted to them and avoid building social housing if they possibly can, are getting all this poverty in their areas through the way the market, mm -hmm. the private market stuck with the private market and lo and behold, as we saw last week, other work, I mean, poor people hitting them out there, that's just mm. fascinating to see social mix, which they certainly were not trying to achieve. The other comment I wanted to, I wanted to ask you whether you could comment on, in the light of all this, whether this very important policy adopted by the Olympic legacy system and Newham Borough in particular, but also embodied in the London plan, that the aim for East London is convergence with the London average. Mm. 
I mean, you're showing that convergence can be achieved by just importing more rich people. It doesn't necessarily have any benefits. Do you have any comment on this kind of way policy is formulated? I mean, I, I, it's not a, it's an odd formulation. I, I'm not, I have to say I've never heard of it in the myself, but I haven't followed the Olympics very closely. It's a remarkable. Um, but I, I mean, just a sort of yes is the answer that you could achieve in that. But I think also the caution I would put to that it's not about importing lots of rich people. Well, and I think that richer, rich, non-poor, and a lot of these people really not necessary possible. And that's what I'm really a bit cautious about. You know, there's a slightly overplayed image sometimes of you know, shipping in rich people somewhere. And a lot of people are really quite precarious, you know, not in, you know, precarious or low paid, but not picked up by the kind of measures that we're using. And that's something I think important about. But Amanda, you, you've been doing some work in Agatabara, haven't you? And that, you know, just as that's... Well, yes, we did. And we've got Brenda's one of our case studies, which as we saw from some of that data, is an interesting case that they've had uh, an increase in poverty there in Agatabara. And what they were telling you was there's an issue of overcrowding for them. Um, so these aren't populations that have been particularly dispersed around the borough. They're quite, there's a concentration going on at the sort of LSOA level of those poorer households. Um, and your particular neighbourhoods being developed as the richer parts of, of that borough and how to redistribute the local authority, their resources to reflect that. And um, it's quite a challenge for them. So. Um. Um, uh, just, um, you're spending sort of a 10 year period, uh, probably it's part of a much longer trend. I mean, you know, thinking back sort of 60 years ago, you know, the Docklands, uh, all those factories around central London mm. were presumably occupied you know, with the low income jobs, and that's where the low income people mm. live. Um, now all those, those jobs have gone. And low-income people are more likely to be, well, certainly not going to be likely to be working in the central London offices, but they're likely to be up working for, I don't know, supermarkets and shops scattered all over London. Um, and so one would have expected that this was actually a trend which had been going on for 40, 40 years. Um, and so the second, well, the second thing is that the, the affordable housing requirement that you know, in London, 50% of new homes are development is supposed to be affordable housing, presumably has an impact in scattering affordable housing around. Yeah, I mean, on the long-term trends, I think, one thing I've not seen, I mean, I think Danny Dorling's made the best efforts to look at that. I mean, there might be two ways, I mean, I can see, I mean, the one way, of course, that was losing the population, you know, up to late 80s, and it might be well that it was losing its more prosperous population more quickly, so that even though we've got, at one point, people in low-paid or relatively low-paid uh, working-class occupations, those disappearing, with uh, whether those people then finding new jobs or whether that being unemployed, it's, I think it's a bit hard to be sure, and I would really like to see a bit of the work that looked at London in you know, that sort of neighbourhood level um, um, detail. But affordable housing, I suppose it depends, you know, is that how much people demand on-site affordable housing, how scattered it is, and, you know, what, what are the routes by which new sites are coming up, and what are the, how, how is that negotiated, and I'm, I'm, so again, it's not something I've followed in the last couple of years so closely, so I don't know whether now, that, you know, there is still, you know, whether there's an easing of the pressure to demand on-site affordable housing, and whether that's, a, you know, as part of, to achieve that 50%, or whether, that, you know, whether that's still, 
uh, you know, as much a favoured policy as it was perhaps in the sort of late 2000s. It's a policy which is resisted by, I think, whichever, uh, the Conservatives in, in power, certainly in the mm. Labour Party, and they simply, their attitude was, we don't want forward work, they're just cancelled now. Cancelled mm. um, but now we've, you know, one of the factors is it's now actually Labour control, so mm. even now it's in power. I think just because of the time, I'm sorry, we need to stop it. But, um, just to thank you once again. Thanks, thank you very much for your presentation.